This morning we look at uh, verses uh, 13 to 23 uh, from chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. And the sermon is entitled, The Faithful and Jealous God. The Faithful and Jealous God. More of the same from Paul the Apostle. He intends to warn uh, the Corinthians, not only in light of Israel's judgment, because that is certainly what he has warned them of in the verses preceding our text in verses 1 to 12. He initially warned them that they were to avoid the same judgments that had befallen Israel, the nation itself. And also he selected very particular accounts where Israel was judged. But he also wanted to, in that particular context, help them understand their place before God. So where they stood before God as a church of the Gentiles in the time after God had dealt specifically with the nation Israel uh, throughout the Old Covenant. But more specifically, what Paul was aiming for in verses 1 to 12 is that he did not want the Gentiles, the Corinthians, to repeat Israel's sins. As we look to this text this morning, what he wants for them is he wanted to bring them before God's faithfulness. He wanted to bring them before God's faithfulness and jealousy for both his glory and his people. So he wanted them to know that God is a faithful God, but God is also a jealous God. And he's jealous for his people, but he's also jealous for his own namesake, for his honor, for his glory. Before that, immediately before that, if you look at verse 12, he says, therefore, connecting what is said before into what will be said after. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So Paul does not want the Corinthians then or us now to think we have mastered ourselves to the point where we could drive ourselves to the knowledge that puffs up. And we remember that related specifically to food sacrifice, to idols, related very generally to idolatry that Paul was speaking of to hold this theoretical knowledge that doesn't work itself out into practice or edifying or building up your brother or sister in Christ. And it is indeed a knowledge that puffs up. And Paul did not want them to be driven to that place. For in that case, we would fall just as Israel had fallen. So then you see this language of sitting down and standing up and standing before, it is not a call for us to rise up to play. As it said in verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Speaking of the Israelites, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink. That is in a celebratory way. They're celebrating their sins and their wickedness. They sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. So it's not a call for us to rise up to play but it is a call for us to rise up and lay hold of and claim to our holiness before the Lord, specifically humility before him. And so next, what Paul deals with in the context we're looking at this morning is why he's dealing with why. Why is this the case? Why is it necessary for us to take heed that we do not fall? That if we're going to think that we stand, that we must take heed. We must pay careful attention to why. Why? Well, it was certain that the Corinthians themselves were going to face temptation. They were definitely going to face temptation. And it's also certain that you and I face temptation. It's certain that in temptation, God is faithful. 
But you and I are going to face trouble. We're going to face temptation. We'll be tempted in our flesh. We'll be tempted uh, to dishonor God. And it is a daily war that we must fight and that we must be successful in. And when we fail, we confess our sins before God, and he is just to forgive us. But we will encounter a faithful God during temptation and during uh, temptation's intensity. So we will encounter not only temptation, but a faithful God in the midst of it. And so that's what the Corinthians needed to realize. That's where they needed to test themselves to make sure that they did not fall, meaning fall away from God, meaning uh, fall into apostasy and unbelief. Uh, the Corinthians needed to recognize loyalty and faithfulness to God would be met by the same faithfulness that God had for them. So specifically for the Corinthians, Paul is speaking of their temptation as it had unfolded in past actions that accumulated or moved toward what we see now before us in the text. So Paul in verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you. The language there suggests past actions. So he's speaking of those things that had happened in the Corinthian past or near past, uh, but things that they had done to result in the fact that they were now at times uh, guilty of idolatry. And so he's calling for them to flee from idolatry and all the effects that have accumulated from their idolatrous heart. Specifically, the previous temptations that had been allowed before and God had certainly allowed them. He was not the source of them. He was not the author of them, but he certainly allowed them and he allowed them in such a way so as to expose them for who they were before God. God wanted them to see for themselves who they were before him. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure. it. So what they needed to know is that God is indeed faithful and he was faithful to those in Corinth who were his. And how then do we see his faithfulness? And where do we see his faithfulness? Well, I'll tell you specifically so that we're not just speaking in a generic manner. Specifically, his faithfulness is seen in the way of escape. It's seen in the way of escape, that he provides a means to escape the temptation. And sometimes the way of escape is after enduring the temptation. And sometimes it's prior to enduring the temptation. But in either case, God always, with guarantee, with great certainty, he provides the way of escape. There was always a way out for the Corinthians. And so I believe it's also why Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. It's not like you have been tempted in a way that no one else has ever been tempted. So it's not only that the temptation is common. He doesn't say the temptation being common that it's easy or that the temptation being common is that in some sense, uh, it, it, there's no difficulty involved in warring against it. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that the temptation is something that every person will endure who names the name of Christ. Unbelievers don't endure temptations because they are unbelievers. They succumb to temptation. They live in the world of not only being those who are 
successfully tempted, but they successfully go about tempting others. We saw that when we looked at Romans. Romans 2, uh, in fact, was the chapter that speaks to that very intentionally. But in this case, it's dealing with those who are his, his church, his people there in Corinth. There was always a way out. The means was there for them to not simply wallow in succumbing to the temptations. So it wasn't simply that they go, they uh, they encounter the temptation, and then they end up uh, falling into sin. But rather, they were to escape and flee from the temptation. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but there is always the way of escape. One does not succumb to temptation without the way of escape being provided and very much visible. So God's not playing a game with people. He's not tricking people. He's not causing people to sin. He's allowing for temptations to expose certain things about themselves. And he's also allowing the enemy at times to do what he does so that God can prove more powerful over him. He's also allowing you to see your growth in Christ. Temptations come for that reason. But in no way, do not misunderstand what I'm saying, in no way is God ever responsible for the temptation that leads to sin. It's either of the flesh, it's either of the flesh or some outside circumstance, or it's of the adversary Satan or his kingdom of darkness. And so we will work through what that looks like in the Corinthians, but I want to be very clear in this area of temptation. God, the Bible says, tempts no man to sin. So we have to hold on to that and lay claim to that. But he does, in the midst of your temptation, in the midst of the Corinthians' temptation, he does provide a successful way of escape. Well, then how come people don't successfully resist temptation? Well, it's because of their flesh. It's not because the way of escape has not been provided. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of faith. I don't say that as standing above anybody in this, but I'm saying it because it is certainly true as we endure and go through temptation. Sometimes it's possible to resist it. Sometimes we succumb to it, but God always provides the way out of it. Sometimes the way out of it is to confess your sins before him and have faith that he is just to forgive you and then turn away from uh, the sin. So we see here, as you see, however, when we truly examine God's faithfulness, I want you to understand something very specific about it because I've said it here. That there is a distinction that is made that Paul says, and I believe that he is a man or was a man of distinction. In verse 14, he says, therefore, it's a connecting action. My beloved, he's still talking to them as believers in Christ, flee from idolatry. Now, one thing we know about God's faithfulness, and I want you to hold on to this and I want you to be encouraged by it this morning. One is what I already said, that he is not the source for the temptation. Because if God were the source of temptation, then we would have to question his faithfulness in the midst of it. So he stands apart from it in supreme holiness. He's not responsible for it. He may allow it to run its course, but he's not responsible for it. That's the first thing we must know about God's faithfulness. The second is, as I've said, uh, we find it in James chapter 1, verse 13, that God tempts no one with evil. So we can trust that whatever it is we endure... And we can trust, as we look at what the Corinthians had to endure, that there was never a time in which God was in a faithless practice toward them, or he was faithless toward them specifically. He was always faithful. He was faithful by sending them the Apostle Paul 
to tell them these things. He was faithful because he did not allow them to be tempted beyond what they were able to endure. Now, that's not the same as what people say. God will not give you more than you can handle because there's an endurance aspect in it. You will find out that as God gives you uh, grace and as God gives you mercy and as God allows temptations, that he will also give you the strength to endure, that he will give you the means of escape. It's seen in his faithfulness. And that is how I believe in this encounter his faithfulness is seen. But I believe that there was a refining aspect that God was allowing in the hearts and minds of the Corinthians there at their church. And I believe that he does so in the same way for believers. It's that he certainly allows temptation because Paul is very clear about that. But we have to also be clear about the purpose. It is to expose and to refine the believer. So he allows the temptation to expose and to refine the belief. There's things that we need to learn about ourselves as we're being sanctified. But there's also things that need to be strengthened. And things that need to be in the refining process. Things that need to be burned off of us, so to speak. So that we can shine forth like gold. So it was no different for the Corinthians. It was no different for them. Notice it does not say that God will always prevent a temptation. That he'll prevent a temptation. Instead, here, the language, the idea that I want you to become very much acquainted to as you become acquainted with his, uh, uh, the fact that God is a jealous God and God is a faithful God and he's also merciful. I want you to understand that the language here is dealing with the fact that he carries the believer through the temptation. He carries the believer through the temptation to endure it, to bear up in strength before the Lord. So then, Paul left the church in Corinth, or you can say it in the age in which we find ourselves, he left us all with no excuse to sin with impunity, or no excuse to simply give up because, quote-unquote, it's too difficult. It is difficult, but we're not to give up in the face of difficulty, anguish, spiritual war, and all the things that come with a fallen world. And I know that's easy to say. I know it's not often easy to practice, but we lay hold of that claim by faith in God and in his character. And that's what Paul wanted for them. He wanted them not only to be able to say God is faithful. He wanted them to know what that faithfulness looked like so that they could lay hold to it and that they could trust and fully live their lives with a full claim staked in God's faithfulness. It is indeed that he holds us fast. And we are fixed to him. But it is God who does that. And he does it always. And he certainly does it in temptation. So then after all that that is said, what Paul can then do is tell them that they need to run. Tell them that they have a part to play in their own sanctification. It's not simply, oh, there's a temptation. God will see me through. It's that there are some times in which I don't want to encounter that very thing because, as is said in the previous text, especially with idolatry, I don't want to put God to the test. I don't want to incur his wrath. I don't want to tempt him to wrath and judgment against me. And so he was telling the Corinthians that they needed to run from idolatry. 
For this so far, this whole context we have been dealing with, it has been the context of our passage, idolatry. I don't know if you've necessarily picked up on that, but it has been idolatry and dealing with the fact that God hates it. God judges people for it. There's different ways to practice idolatry. He's dealt with it in the arena of uh, food sacrifice to idols, and that will flow into the nature of idolatry uh, with respect to the nation of Israel. And then that flows into them desecrating the Lord's table in the next chapter that we'll be looking at in chapter 11. But specifically, Paul wants them to run from it. No matter how it manifests itself, he wants them to be free from it and he wants them to run from it. We have to be very weary of our idols. We have to be very weary of our idols. Idols, as society launches forward to the very end and the return of Christ, idols become more acceptable and they actually become more subtle. I don't believe that idol worship becomes more of this overt thing. I think it becomes certainly more sophisticated. And I say that because of how idols manifest themselves in the time in which we find ourselves today. But having said that, the call is still the same. The call is still to flee from idolatry. That has not changed. There in Corinth, there would have been a mix of temple worship. They were a very religious and affluent society. It would have been all the idols and all the so-called, quote unquote, gods, the pantheon of gods that they themselves uh, worship and they themselves uh, invested with great emotion that they sacrificed food toward, that they sacrificed themselves, uh, that they sacrificed in practices of immorality and other ways. But Paul was very clear that this is not only something they should run from, but I want you to think about why he asked them to run from it. Because where are they? They're in the church. So what Paul is concerned with is that the idolatry is beginning to make inroads into the church. So he's saying from where you are, from where you seat, from where you stand, I want you to run from idolatry. It is to understand the Lord is not for play. The Lord is not for play. And it's to understand not to flirt with idolatry or to be a partaker of it. You have a strong stance, Paul says. So much so that you run from it. You don't sit there and have a Q&A about it. You don't sit there and figure out. You know, how could I engage in syncretism? That is the blending of the Christian faith or the one true God with other gods and other faiths. You don't do that. You run from it. You run from it. So Paul appealed to them in wisdom. Look at verse 15. I speak as to wise men. For now, I'm believing you to be wise. Now, what they'll do what he says uh, or what they do with what he says determines if they're fools or if they're wise, because he says that in the next part of verse 15. You judge what I say. In wisdom, if you are truly wise, when I say what I'm saying, you will then judge rightly and practice accordingly. And so that's what he's appealing to. He's appealing to them in wisdom. As he believed to this point, it's something that we have talked about even here. He believed to this point that they were still wise in Christ, that they needed to grow that they needed to mature. But he also believed that they were able to discern what he was saying to them. This is Paul. And that they were able to act in obedience to the Lord. What he then is moving toward is not only the form of idolatry tied to expressive worship. Because there is a form of idolatry where people are lifting up hands and they're singing out. And they're really doing those things with a motive uh, to please self or to please others uh, or to please some gods, other religions 
uh, sing and cry out as well and lift their hands. But those practical, listen to this, he's moving toward those practical and specific acts such as eating or drinking that may provoke the one who is in temptation to be a partaker and accomplice to idols. What Paul is saying here in verse 16, when we read it together, it says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Essentially, what he's moving toward is the danger is not inherently the idol. The danger is not inherently the idol. It's not necessarily that the idol, it is dangerous to perform idol worship. But there's a danger behind that. Because as Paul said earlier, the idol is nothing, which is the literal translation for the word idol in the Hebrew. It's nothing. Rather, it is, again, what is behind the idol that should cause the Corinthians to flee. It's not simply the icon or image. It is what is pointing your heart's affection toward the icon and image or practice or inherent thought or anything that's erected against uh, the supreme lordship of Christ and God the Father as overall sovereign and eternal. They are sharers. Together in something. So Paul pictures this for the Corinthians within the framework of the Lord's Supper. He's beginning to enter into that area because he talks about the cup of blessing, which we bless as such a sharing in the blood of Christ. He talks about the bread, which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. He's speaking about those things in very intentional ways, pointing to something that they do together. That you and I are very familiar with as we partake of communion and read that passage. He's pointing them toward that. But he's also pointing them toward that in such a way so as to get them to understand it's not the same as the pagan feast that we're making inroads into the church. Or the frivolous eating and celebration and festivity and festival that goes with just gathering together for uh, the purpose of satisfying hunger. So Paul is dealing with. Their view of the Lord's Supper. And something is off. But he's helping them to understand that they need to bring this point back into focus. That they are sharers together in the Lord's Supper. Verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So they are eating and drinking the elements together. They're eating and drinking the elements together. And I believe that that is certainly what then applies. uh, That is certainly the case as we partake faithfully of the Lord's Supper and other brothers and sisters partake faithfully of the Lord's Supper. That although they are absent from us, we do so all together, commemorating the same purpose, having the same unity in doing it, awaiting the same return of the Lord Jesus Christ. To install his visible kingdom uh, so that we may reign with him. And so they are doing this together. While yet also sharing with the Lord himself. So they are sharing with the Lord himself. How is that the case? 
And why is that the case? He is the unseen hand guiding the memoriam of his person and his impending return. He is the unseen hand. Now, certainly you can make the case that we see his hand moving. But to our natural eye, it is unseen. But he guides our hearts and he guides our minds and he guides our fellowship. And he guides specifically the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as it is practiced in the life of his church. He is guiding the memoriam of his per- of his person. He is behind the elements. He's not within the elements, but he is the hand behind the elements as we partake together. And we also do so with respect to his impending return. We know that he's coming back again. So we know that we're doing something in the now that focuses on the future that God himself is guiding through Christ. We do not, as we see later in the next chapter, worship the elements of his table. We don't work because that would be idolatry. We don't worship the bread and the wine. Nor do we ascribe personhood and an overliteral nature to the elements. We don't look at the bread and say, this is Jesus inside of the bread. We don't look at the wine and say, this is literal blood. We share in the elements together. The elements point us to something. They point us to the unseen hand of God, specifically of Christ, guiding the memoriam and worship of his person in this act, but also joining and unifying his body to commemorate the same thing together. It's him behind it. And there is one bread and one cup, one Lord and one body. Guess what? One faith and one ruler of us all. And he is Lord over his supper. Paul, also in verse 18, he applies these things to the feast in the nation Israel. Look at the nation Israel, he says. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Paul appealed to feast in the nation as they should have been practiced and recognized. Because they weren't always practiced and recognized the same way. Those who eat that which points to the altar in reverence are also sharers with what the altar means. Now, if you really start to move in the direction that Paul is moving because he's making a very logical, spiritual and biblical, but a very logical argument. We're going to move in the direction that he's moving because I want you to place this in the context of idolatry. In verse 19... It says, what do I mean then? In other words, why am I getting into all this? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Am I trying to instill fear in you? Am I trying to make it so that when you walk past idols, you cover your eyes or you close your ears? Am I saying that they don't exist and we can simply partake of idols because they don't really exist after all? No. He poses this question to bridge their thinking and to bridge our thinking as to why it is so dangerous to feast in the name of idols or to feast carelessly with regard to idol worship. In the same way that Jesus is the unseen hand Behind the supper and the unseen power calling memoriam to himself 
Well, then what can be said about the pagan feast? That the unseen hand behind them is Satan and his demons. Calling a memorial to their selves. Calling a sacrifice and worship of them. And as I've said before, you see Paul reveals it. He speaks this way. He speaks as to why it's dangerous to feast in the name of idols. It's not the idols. It's the unseen hand behind the idols. It's the unseen worship that one is called to in the practice of idolatry. It is to feast carelessly with regard to this idol worship if those in the church just feast and say, well, the idols don't exist, so it doesn't matter. Paul reveals this by the Holy Spirit explicitly. It's not merely a sacrifice in the pagan sense to an icon or image or some manner of thinking meant to invoke something outside of Christ. It's not simply that. That is the effect of it. That is the effect of idolatry, especially in feasting. Rather, the pagan feasts, these Gentile sacrifices are sacrificed to the demons who have erected the idols. Do you understand that? They are sacrifices to the demons, the unseen hand, so to speak, behind the idols who have erected them. There were many in this society that would claim the sacrifices were to the gods, but that's just not true. Paul says this isn't so. Rather, these sacrifices are sacrifices to demons. And what Paul wanted them to do is he wanted them to avoid or refrain from joining blasphemous and destructive sins of demons and demonic worship. Because once you invite them in, they're in. We see that during the time of Christ. How did all these demons get in to Israel? Well, they were invited. They were welcomed through the idolatrous heart. He says no. The answer to the question that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. It's not demons and God. It's to demons and not to God. You see Paul put this into practice in Acts 17. I won't have you go there, but think about his time on Mars Hill. He's tearing down idols, but it's not simply the visible structures. He's tearing down the demonic uh, hand behind the idols that erected the idols in the first place. And I do not want you, I like how explicit Paul here is, I do not want you to become sharers in demons. He's very direct. You're not sacrificing to God when you sacrifice in the pagan feast or some kind of pagan religious act or someone who says, in our day, demonic worship is really, I'm just a spiritual person. I just don't believe in God. Well, that's demonic. But instead, he wants them to worship the one true God. And he wants them to practice <coughs> as though they worship the one true God. There can be none of what is called syncretism. That is to blend the true worship of God with any form, any form. Of pagan worship and then say it is the worship of the Lord. That's the deception. Syncretism blends them together, blends paganism 
and the true worship of God, biblical Christianity, it tries to blend them together and says we're worshiping the Lord. That's syncretism. Paul says there can be none of that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And then he says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. We are not stronger than he, are we? If you look at verse 23, it also says, as we conclude our time, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. What Paul is referring to as you look to this entire context, especially as it ends with this, uh, the last two verses, this action stirs up the worship of idols in any form. It stirs up God's wrath against those who do this. It stirs it up. And it has done so throughout the entire biblical record. It has done so in the things that are perhaps unwritten historical context. That haven't made their way into the Bible itself. And it will be done in the future. That God will destroy idolaters. But this stirs up also God's omnipotence. That is his all-powerful nature. Omnipotence means all-powerful nature. To crush his enemies. Now listen. It's a simple thought that Paul brings up. Especially in this area of idol worship. And I wish so many today would just think of it this way. Since we do not bear his eternal power, we should not ever challenge his power because we will lose. We don't have his eternal power to say, let's enthrone something else for our hearts to worship. Not only are we unsanctioned to make that call, we don't have the power to win that war. Because when you raise up an idol, you're saying, I stand with this idol, and this idol will defeat God himself. But we don't have that power, and Paul puts it very simply. He says, you don't have the power that he has. He's stronger than you. So why provoke someone who's stronger than you? Why, so to speak, stick your finger in, the, in their eye? Because you'll lose. You'll be crushed. It's a, loser's, it's a loser's bet and a loser's battle. So this is what Paul is saying, essentially. I want you to understand it. We are not as strong as he is, the one true God. We're not as strong as he is, for he is our strength. If you want to be strong, you have to be in him. So to move yourself away from him or to detach yourself from him and worship other things, you have no strength. So it is better than for the Corinthians and for us not to tempt him to pour out his wrath because he has eternal wrath, an endless supply of wrath. Equally so, he has an endless supply of mercy. So it would be better for us to join him in his cause related to his mercy rather than fight against him and provoke his eternal wrath. That is truly the call of the gospel itself. And I believe that Paul is dealing with it as the Corinthians 
keep dancing on the rim of destruction. And he's saying, you're not strong enough to sin against him this way. Guess what? Nobody is. Idolatry is a sure area where this provoking is to take place. And Paul is warning them, please do not provoke God to act. And he gives them even the the history of the nation Israel. Here are all the times or some of the times that God was provoked and God responded this way and crushed all rebels. Well, now we stand right before the time in which Christ himself returns. And so it would be very wise for the world at large, for those who are practicing false religion and paganism of all stripes, to not provoke Christ to pour out his wrath upon those who are his enemies. It is better to be his friend. It is better to be his joint heir. Essentially, this is a call for the Corinthians to surrender, to surrender. They have to surrender because it will get worse if they do not. So then the Corinthians are called to take heed. I believe this goes back to what he said before in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. They are called to be mindful and sober, just as we are, that we would only worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.